0: and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Super Mario Bros. 3, a side-scrolling platforming title developed and published by Nintendo and released in 1988 for the Famicom system in Japan, with a North American release on the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1990 and other geographic regions following in 1991. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes. But first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 68. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing. Provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you. and There are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at Classic Gaming T. I have an email address, which is Classic Gaming Today at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. And it is also the home of our weekly gaming challenge. This past weekend was all about New Year's resolutions. There were a bunch of different games and a bunch of different challenges from those games, all centered around things that we would normally resolve to do at the beginning of the year, whether that's get better at a skill or learn to dance or things like that. Anyway, after the weekend, and by the way, this is the last weekend in season number one of our challenge. So after the weekend, the final scoreboard is coming in at first is iso congratulations iso this is the second season in a row that iso has won he is the top of the leaderboard and the grand prize winner Coming in in second place was Bookie GNU, followed by Rich Centerwald in a close third. I am removing myself from the leaderboard because I don't really want to compete against myself, so I'm taking myself out of it. I would have been in fourth place. The fifth place is I Am The Dizzle. Sixth place, left-handed guitarist. Seventh place, for the first time appearing on the leaderboard, is Psycho Toad. He got 15 points just this weekend to get into seventh place, and then Public Self in eighth place. So that is the finale of season one congratulations to iso and just so everybody is aware there are going to be prizes for all participants or at least a subset of participants beyond the grand prize winner more details are to come on discord related to that so keep an eye out on discord we'll talk more about prizes out there We are going to be taking a slight sabbatical from the normal weekly gaming challenge season kind of concept. We're still going to be doing the weekly gaming challenge. There's going to be more details as soon as I post it out there on Discord. So rest assured, we are continuing to do the challenge, but I have some ideas for how to mix it up a little bit moving forward. So that is going to be coming up in the very near future. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash Classic Gaming Today. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, Patreon.com slash Classic Gaming Today is where it's at, and that includes an exclusive bi-weekly podcast expansion pack and an exclusive channel out on Discord, along with a couple of other perks. So if that sounds like a good time to you, the spot to get it is out on Patreon. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are iso rich Senewal, dave morton and sam twardowski thank you guys for supporting the show thank you all for supporting the show whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis i truly do appreciate all of the support for anyone who may be new welcome i just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because for the most part all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. How was the game made? Why was the game made? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or star counts or anything like that. But we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should drop what you're doing. Go out and play that game today. Beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still extremely worthwhile experiences, and I still highly encourage you all to go play them today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games I can't recommend to the broad population They may have aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend these games to the broad population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Super Mario Bros. 3. Super Mario Bros. 3 is a side-scrolling platforming title developed and published by Nintendo and released in 1988 in Japan, 1990 in North America, and 1991 in other geographic regions. Before we can talk about Super Mario Bros. 3, we need to go back in time and talk about the birth of Mario himself. We have touched upon this a couple of times previously, but never in extensive depth, so for all intents and purposes, this is the episode where we'll finally dive deep into Mario's origins. In order to understand the origins of Mario, we have to go back even further and talk about one of the most influential game designers in history, Shigeru Miyamoto. Miyamoto got his start at Nintendo in the 1970s, originally as a creative artist who would help with graphics design for some of Nintendo's early arcade efforts. All of Miyamoto's work was well-received, but at this point in his career, he wasn't really working on anything that could be considered revolutionary. That would all change in 1981, though, which is when Miyamoto would have the opportunity to save Nintendo from potential financial ruin. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, Nintendo had yet to enter the home console market, at least with any degree of actual focus. Sure, back in 1974, Nintendo acquired the Japanese distribution rights to the Magnavox Odyssey console, but that was simply distribution, not creation. And in 1977, you had the Color TV game series of consoles, which were developed by Nintendo, but those weren't cartridge-based consoles. Each was a dedicated system, meaning each could only play the game or games that were built into them. Where Nintendo was focused instead was in the arcades, and they had a modicum of success in the late 70s and early 80s with a number of different arcade releases. One of those games, Radar Scope, was a space fighter game, a sort of more advanced space invaders, where players would be tasked with defending a space station from a never-ending onslaught of enemy spacecraft. That game was released in Japan in 1980, and based on early tests in Seattle, there was belief that the game could potentially become a big hit in the United States. So, the recently created Nintendo subsidiary, Nintendo of America, under the leadership of Nintendo President Hiroshi Yamauchi's son-in-law, Minoru Arakawa, decided to take a gamble. Arakawa spent the majority of Nintendo of America's budget on purchasing 3,000 Radar Scope machines, with the hopes that they'd be able to take the United States by storm, turn a tidy profit, and set Nintendo of America up as a true force in the American gaming market. There was only one issue. Because of the shipping logistics that had been in place around this time, the arcade machines had to be transported from Japan to New York, and unplanned shipping delays made it so that the machines didn't reach America until four months after they were originally ordered. By that time, any degree of interest in the title had waned significantly, so out of those 3,000 radar scope cabinets, only 1,000 made their way into arcades across the United States. This left a significant amount of unsold inventory just sitting in warehouses, which meant that the investment that Nintendo of America made in those machines was effectively a loss. This would have had catastrophic financial implications for the newly created Nintendo subsidiary. So Arakawa went to his father-in-law, Hiroshi Yamauchi, and asked if the company could somehow create a game that could be retrofitted into the unsold Radar Scope cabinets, effectively allowing Nintendo to sell a brand new game using the pre-existing hardware that would otherwise simply be sitting collecting dust. In an effort to avoid financial ruin, Yamauchi put out a company-wide call for ideas to convert RadarScope into something that could potentially make the company some money. While there would be a number of ideas put forward, there was one that stood head and shoulders, literally above the rest. That idea came directly from Shigeru Miyamoto and was focused on a love triangle kind of concept based on the classic cartoon series Popeye, where the player would control Popeye with the goal being to rescue love interest Olive Oil from constant pest and frequent kidnapper Bluto across a variety of levels. Nintendo thought the idea had merit, so they went off to try to acquire the Popeye license, only to fail miserably. Undeterred, Miyamoto took his concept and made it more general instead opting for an unnamed princess to be kidnapped by a gigantic ape, with the player character evolving from Popeye into a generic carpenter-like character with overalls, a hat, and a mustache. That character, known as Jumpman, would traverse several stages full of sloped floors, falling barrels, and other obstacles, en route to hopefully rescuing the princess from certain doom. With that concept in place, Miyamoto was given the approval to proceed with designing his new game, but there was only one issue. Miyamoto didn't know how the heck to make a game himself. Sure, he had some interesting ideas, but he didn't have the technical skill set to sit down and program and create a brand new gaming experience. So he would be teamed up with Nintendo veteran and head engineer Gunpei Yokoi to help bring the project to life. Yokoi had already had a long and storied career at Nintendo beginning as a factory worker, pivoting to toy creator, and evolving over time into one of Nintendo's most innovative inventors across a variety of different domains, including video games. Yokoi was also an informal mentor to Miyamoto, so the fact that Yokoi was asked to oversee Miyamoto's first real game design project was pretty much a perfect match. Over a period of several months, Miyamoto and Yakoi would bounce ideas off of each other while working with a team of dedicated developers to determine what could potentially be coded into a game and what was simply too advanced to develop. Ideas like sloped floors and ladders for level traversal stayed in the game, while other ideas like using seesaws to catapult yourself through a stage were simply too complex to create and were therefore scrapped. Eventually, Miyamoto's new game, which would be shipped to the United States as a conversion kit for the unsold Radar Scope cabinet, would be complete, and the initial response by the Nintendo of America sales department was less than kind, with one sales manager claiming the game would never sell as it deviated too much from the traditional kinds of games that arcade goers spent most of their time playing. As other Nintendo employees continued playing the game though, They began to believe that there was something more here than originally assumed, and while testing the game, they began to come up with new American-sounding names for the characters inhabiting the game world. The damsel in distress would be named Pauline, after the wife of one of Nintendo of America's warehouse managers, while the giant ape at the center of the conflict would be christened as Donkey Kong, who also ended up lending his name to the title of the game. And that jumpy, mustachioed carpenter that could leap over barrels, pick up and swing hammers and climb ladders would end up being rechristened as well, this time based on the name of the landlord of one of Nintendo's warehouses. And with that, Jumpman would cease to exist. Instead, from that point forward, Donkey Kong's playable character would be known as Mario. Mario. With 2,000 Radar Scope cabinets retrofitted to now play Donkey Kong, the game was released to the market and became an instant sensation, driving arcade owners everywhere to contact Nintendo for more cabinets to meet the demand of players. Over the course of the next year, more than 60,000 additional cabinets would be sold, and between cabinet sales and gamers spending hard-earned quarters on the machine, Donkey Kong would gross over $280 million by the end of 1982 which is the equivalent of nearly $1 billion in today's economy. That is absolutely insane. With Donkey Kong's success, Miyamoto quickly earned a reputation as a rising star in the company, and with Gunpei Yokoi's guidance, he would go on to work on a variety of titles over the next couple years, including a couple of sequels to Donkey Kong, as well as a new spin-off title, putting Donkey Kong's playable character, Mario, in a brand new adventure, complete with an occupation change from carpenter to plumber, a location shift to the sewers of New York City, some new special abilities, like the ability to fall from any height and not take damage, and the introduction of a new member of the family, the ultimate second player character, Luigi. And with that, Mario Bros. would be released to arcades in 1983, and while it wouldn't be nearly as successful in the arcades as Donkey Kong, it would still prove to be another hit for Miyamoto, allowing his star to rise even more within the internal ranks at Nintendo. There was just one issue, though. Mario as a character had a lot of potential, and while he had starred in two successful games thus far, he still wasn't a household name. Sure, arcade-goers of the time certainly appreciated Mario's adventures, but the character didn't really have much recognition beyond the more hardcore gamer community. But there was a new opportunity that was about to present itself. Right around the time that Nintendo released Mario Bros. to arcades, they were also re-entering the home video game market with the introduction of the Nintendo Family Computer, or Famicom, console in Japan. This new console was built on an 8-bit architecture and was intended, at least in part, to bring some stability to an ailing video game market that had just been shaken by a significant crash in consumer confidence and spending on home video games. With Nintendo facing an uphill battle, the company turned to some of their more dependable video game designers, including Shigeru Miyamoto, to begin making games for their new console. While Miyamoto's early efforts on the Famicom, like Excite Bike and Duck Hunt, as well as the Black Label sports titles, baseball, tennis, and golf, would have a modicum of success, they would more importantly allow him to continue refining and improving his game design set. His real jump into the stratosphere, though, would happen a couple years later, which is when he returned to the Mario Bros. universe in a move that would end up having a profound impact on Miyamoto's career, Nintendo as a video game company, and, without exaggeration, the entire world. As 1985 approached, Nintendo was nearing an inflection point. For the last several years, they had been working on creating games for their Famicom system, and over that period of time, the team and Miyamoto himself had learned a lot about what made a good game, as well as how best to use the capabilities of their 8-bit system. At the same time, Nintendo was readying for the release of the Nintendo Entertainment System in North America, a launch that they recognized needed to make a big splash if they had any hopes of continuing to revitalize the North American video game market that had just started to recover from the early 80s crash. Furthermore, in Japan, the company was preparing for yet another launch, an add-on peripheral for the Famicom called the Famicom Disk System, which would use cheaper-cost floppy disks to both provide additional storage capabilities over the traditional cartridge format, while at the same time addressing chip shortages that were prevalent due to the sheer demand for Nintendo titles by gamers and retailers alike. It was a stressful time, but it was also a perfect opportunity to innovate. So, Nintendo decided to greenlight two projects. One would represent the pinnacle of current game design, taking all of the lessons learned over the last several years and distilling all the best parts of prior games into a single title that would effectively serve as the perfect representation of what the cartridge-based format would be capable of, and would hopefully act as a system seller for the forthcoming North American NES launch. The other project would represent the future of game design, utilizing the capabilities of the soon-to-be-released Famicom Disk System to create an expansive world beyond what current cartridges would be capable of, and would, for the first time, allow players the ability to save their progress without the use of a complex password system. That Famicom Disk System game, the one that would create a world representing the future of video games, would eventually become The Legend of Zelda. The cartridge-based game, the one that would represent the pinnacle of current 8-bit game design? is the title that would eventually become Super Mario Bros. Bringing both games to life would fall to the same team, with Shigeru Miyamoto directing, and fellow teammates Takashi Tezuka designing levels, characters, and general game frameworks, and Koji Kondo composing songs and developing sound effects, along with others providing support for the underlying programming and art creation. Interestingly, the development for Super Mario Bros. and The Legend of Zelda would effectively represent two sides of the same coin, with each title being designed in such a way that ideas that didn't make sense in one game would almost certainly work in the other. In fact, during the development of the two games, the team would often bin their ideas into two categories, literally labeled Mario Ideas and Zelda Ideas, with Miyamoto acting as the final judge as to which game each idea would be applied to. Perhaps the most notable example of this kind of decision-making was related to the overall structure of each game. It should be said that Miyamoto, as you might expect, had a grand vision for each title. His goal with Super Mario Bros. was to create a very linear experience, where every action that a player took was effectively sequential, and the game would even begin introducing the player to various core mechanics in an almost friendly, hand-holding kind of way. This kind of user-friendly design was almost unheard of in this era of gaming. The concept of embedding tutorials of sorts into games really only came about in the 90s, Before then, the assumption was that gamers would either need to put in the time or read the manual in order to understand how to play a game. But Super Mario Bros. did in fact provide a tutorial, sort of, in the form of the first level, and this was entirely by design. Miyamoto wanted any player who touched the game to understand how to play the game and what the mechanics for the title would be simply by completing the first level. The thought was that if you could complete level one, you'd have the foundational knowledge needed to tackle the remaining 31 levels of the game. Now, it's not like the team created tooltips that popped up on the screen that said press A to jump or anything like that, but that first level of the game was designed to gently introduce players to the game, and for the most part, it succeeded. The Legend of Zelda, by contrast, was designed to be a much more open-ended, free-form experience, and if you want to learn more about the development of that title – I'd encourage you to check out our episode on The Legend of Zelda from several months ago. Anyway, Super Mario Bros. would go on to be an absolutely astronomical blockbuster release and would become the first real killer app for Nintendo's 8-bit console family. Over the course of its lifetime, Super Mario Bros. would sell over 40 million copies, which was good enough to hold the top video game sales record for over 20 years. To put it mildly, it was a big deal, and the trinity of Miyamoto, Tezuka, and Kondo quickly garnered significant respect across Nintendo and the video game industry at large. With such success, you might assume that the team would get right to work on a sequel, and here you would be right. While Miyamoto himself began to ascend to a position of more oversight as opposed to direct daily contribution to the games under his watch, Takashi Tezuka was given the opportunity to direct his first title, which is exactly what he did when he created Super Mario Bros. 2 for the Nintendo Famicom system in June of 1986. Colloquially across many geographic areas, the Japanese version of Super Mario Bros. 2 is known simply as the Lost Levels, and this colloquialism has stuck over the years, primarily because the game wasn't released outside of Japan until years after its initial creation. The thought behind Super Mario 2 was that if a player had already beaten the first game, they likely had a fair degree of platforming skill. So, Super Mario 2 was designed to ramp up the difficulty for those players who had previously beaten the first Super Mario title, effectively beginning from Stage 1 at the same level of difficulty that the first game ended with, and providing an experience that was more of an evolution of the newly developed Mario platforming formula as opposed to a revolution. The issue was, when that version of Mario 2 was presented to Nintendo of America, the subsidiary's leadership felt that the game was too similar to the original title, and was also likely too challenging for North American gamers, who had only recently become exposed to Mario in the first place. For Japanese players though, who Nintendo believed were more skilled than their international counterparts, this was a perfect fit. A game that would challenge the player base with what can effectively be described as more of the same, albeit with many situations and enemies tweaked to be more brutally difficult than its predecessor. So, for the Japanese market, Super Mario 2 can almost be thought of as an expansion pack of sorts for the original title, and players in Japan ate it up. For the rest of the world, though, the Japanese version of Super Mario Bros. 2 wasn't even on their radar. Instead, the Super Mario Bros. 2 that everyone else got was a reskin of a previously developed game for the Nintendo Famicom Disk System, known as Yume Kojo Doki Doki Panic. Doki Doki Panic was originally conceived as a vertically scrolling platforming title and represented a partnership between Nintendo and Fuji Television, where the characters and game world would tie into a licensing kind of deal, culminating in Fuji Television's Kojo 87 event, which translates directly as Dream Factory 87. The game itself would consist of a series of characters that the player could select between, each of which had specific skills and abilities to help traverse the game's various levels. Interestingly though, the original concept behind the game would shift fairly dramatically once Shigeru Miyamoto became involved, as he believed that integrating side-scrolling platforming into the title, similar to what he spearheaded in the original Super Mario Bros., would make the game a more fun, engaging experience. He didn't want the team to remove the vertical scrolling aspect of the title, but he thought that integrating side-scrolling as well would make the game that much better. As development on the game proceeded, Miyamoto became more heavily engaged, integrating other elements of the Mario formula into the gameplay, until eventually, Doki Doki Panic hit the Japanese video game market in 1987. Interestingly, because of Miyamoto's involvement with Doki Doki Panic's development, he actually spent more time working on that title than he did the Japanese version of Super Mario 2, which like I mentioned earlier, was helmed primarily by Takashi Tezuka. So, when the time came to release a Super Mario sequel outside of Japan, The fact that Doki Doki Panic had already adopted some of the Super Mario formula while also being supervised by Shigeru Miyamoto made it a natural choice as a potential entry in the Super Mario series. The only issue was, other than general gameplay characteristics and a couple of power-ups, there was nothing about Doki Doki Panic that suggested it was a Mario title. So Miyamoto and the team decided to reskin the original playable characters. Instead of being licensed characters from Fuji Television's Yomei Kojo series, those characters would morph into Mario, Luigi, Princess Peach, and Toad, with each character inheriting the skills that the Kojo characters were originally designed around, albeit with some minor tweaks. It's interesting to think about the fact that without Doki Doki Panic, Princess Peach may never have gotten her now-iconic float jump move. And even beyond that, a number of other traits that have become permanent additions to Mario characters, like Luigi's ability to jump a bit higher than his shorter brother, were carried through to future titles. Doki Doki Panic is what made all of that happen. Anyway, Doki Doki Panic would be reskinned and rebranded as Super Mario 2 everywhere outside of Japan, and would become a huge success for the NES, eventually becoming the fourth highest-selling game on the console. But that stat, by the way, needs a little bit of context. In reality, Super Mario 2 was the highest-selling standalone title released for the NES ever. Meaning... All of the games that beat its sales figures were, at some point in time, pack-in titles with the NES itself, which served to inflate their overall sales numbers. Super Mario 2, despite beginning its life as a different title completely, was a resounding success. And with that success came true worldwide dominance – To say that Mario had evolved into a true pop culture icon at this point would be a bit of an understatement, as Nintendo's leadership in the home console market, as well as the recognizable mustachioed mascot, made it so that even if someone didn't play games, they probably knew who Mario was. Mario and Nintendo were worldwide sensations, and gamers around the world began wondering what Mario adventure would come next. Luckily for everyone, development on Mario's next adventure, Super Mario Bros. 3, was already in full swing and had in fact started shortly after the Japanese version of Super Mario 2 had released back in 1986. This new title, helmed directly by Shigeru Miyamoto, was being designed to represent the crowning achievement of a Nintendo team that had honed their design and development expertise to near perfection over the preceding years. And Miyamoto was adamant that with this new title, Any and all ideas were on the table. He wanted to create something truly innovative, and something that could be seen as a true send-off for Nintendo's 8-bit Famicom and NES systems, as attention was rapidly beginning to be diverted to both the portable Game Boy system, as well as the forthcoming Super Famicom 16-bit console. So, Miyamoto and the team began brainstorming ideas, some of which, like turning the title into an isometric perspective platformer never made it into the game, while others, like a variety of new power-ups to augment the traditional mushroom, fire flower, one-ups, and star power from the original title, became core constructs of the game's framework. Other additions included the ability to store items in an inventory of sorts, along with a series of game worlds and accompanying overworld maps, providing a less linear experience than prior Mario titles, even going so far as to allow certain levels to be bypassed entirely by going down a different path on the overworld map. Beyond the core gameplay enhancements that those power-ups and multi-path overworld maps would provide, Miyamoto considered that this was a way to allow all players, whether advanced platforming veterans or Mario newbies, to experience the game and have fun. To help ease the indoctrination process for newcomers, Miyamoto and the team designed the game's early levels to be much simpler and easier to complete, while later levels would be designed with significantly more challenge, as by that point, even newer players will hopefully have developed the skills needed to tackle those challenges. Regardless of which levels players were playing, they'd notice fairly quickly that each level was designed to encourage use of the new power-ups that the team created for the game. As an example, if you're in an open stage with a sky above you, more times than not, you'd be able to use the raccoon leaf to fly into the sky and discover some sort of secret that normally would have been out of reach. Or perhaps you're in a water stage where your normal swimming ability seems just a bit underpowered. Well, use your frog suit and freely traverse the level without issue. The key thing to keep in mind is that while levels would be designed to encourage the use of power-ups, very few actually require their use with the exception of maybe one or two levels that may have an exit placed along the ceiling of a room. In those cases, though, the game was designed to provide an endless supply of the needed power-up, making it so that players could never really get stuck, regardless of what items they may have had in their inventory. Those levels would be populated by a cast of characters both old and new, with Miyamoto and the team taking inspiration from various real-life experiences. As an example, the Chain Chomp, which is a dog-like ball of teeth and fury that snaps at Mario and is attached to certain parts of different stages with the Chain Leash, was inspired by an encounter Miyamoto had as a child, where a dog lunged at him only to be pulled away at the last second by its owner. Bowser's children, the Koopalings, would similarly be based on real-world people, as Miyamoto wanted to honor the programming team that was working on Super Mario 3. So, the original appearance and behaviors of the Koopalings would mimic those hard-working programmers, though the eventual North American release would rename those characters after classical and modern musicians, losing a bit of that tribute in the process. Speaking of music, the soundtrack for Super Mario 3 would once again be composed by frequent Miyamoto collaborator Koji Kondo, who created musical tracks that mixed classic Mario themes with brand new compositions, and interestingly, Kondo has claimed that Super Mario 3 was one of the harder titles that he had to create music for. In the past, Kondo had created music that he believed fit the design of the levels within an individual game. For Super Mario 3, though, the variety of levels at play was dramatically higher than any game that he had worked on previously, and as a result, he began trying to focus on specific musical genres to provide a cohesive sound for the entire game, rather than disparate melodies that varied from track to track. While it was undoubtedly challenging to get the right mix in place, Kondo would eventually complete his work, and the development team integrated his music into the game. We'll talk about my thoughts on the music a little later on, but I'll just say, Super Mario 3 is 100% a recognizable Koji Kondo score, which from my perspective, is a good thing. Anyway, with the game design coming into shape, let's talk briefly about the technical aspects of the game, because Super Mario 3 would be designed as an enhanced NES title. Meaning, the Super Mario 3 cartridge would contain extra circuitry and chips that would provide capabilities beyond what the base Famicom system would support, similar to how the super fx chip extended the 3d capabilities of the super nes years later the specific enhancements for super mario 3 included additional hardware to allow for animated tiles additional memory to allow for diagonal scrolling as you typically experience when flying and perhaps most ingeniously a special piece of hardware known as a scanline timer that was used to split the screen between the playable area and the status bar section at the bottom of the screen This last feature might seem super simple because status bars in games aren't exactly a new thing. But that status bar actually contained its own animations and effects, such as the power up bar that fills as you run around a level, and the inventory system that players can use when deciding which power up to select before entering a stage from the overworld map. It's a small thing visually, and it's not something that many people will even realize was a special thing but it did in fact enable Super Mario 3 to feel more advanced than many other titles of the time that would instead rely on static displays for health items or scores. Eventually, all of the different gameplay design and technical elements would come together, and Super Mario 3 would be ready for release in Japan in 1988, with a broader release expected to follow shortly thereafter. This was one of the hottest properties of all time, and one of the most anticipated games of its era, so you can only imagine how excited people were around the world to get their hands on Super Mario 3. There was just one problem. In 1988, Nintendo experienced a chip shortage, driven primarily by the insane demand for their games, including the best-selling international version of Super Mario 2. In short, Nintendo was too popular for its own good, and this shortage would end up delaying a number of games beyond their original release date. For a title as anticipated as Super Mario 3, the wait would end up feeling unbearable and could also potentially drive some backlash towards Nintendo as a company. Recall that one of the last times Nintendo faced a significant delay with the release of a highly anticipated game, the arcade title Radar Scope, interest had significantly waned by the time it made its way to market so much so that they needed to pull out heroics to not face a financially devastating situation. While I'm not claiming that Super Mario 3 could possibly suffer the same fate, there was certainly some negativity surrounding the delay that could, potentially, have impacted future sales. In what ended up being an ingenious marketing move, Nintendo partnered with Universal Studios to help minimize the delay's impact by creating a theatrical release, full-length Hollywood film that would end up showcasing a number of Nintendo's hottest games, while at the same time providing an extended preview of Super Mario 3 for international audiences. That film, entitled The Wizard and starring Cred Savage, Christian Slater, and Bo Bridges, would tell the story of a young video game savant and he and his brother's journey to California. Along the way, they'd meet a variety of different characters, hustle people out of money, get an up-and-close personal look at the Nintendo Power Glove peripheral and ultimately achieve superstardom at the Armageddon Video Game Championship, held at Universal Studios Hollywood. While the pessimistic amongst you might view The Wizard as a pure marketing ploy and extended commercial for both Nintendo and Universal Studios, the fact is, for kids in the late 80s, it was a major life event, as never before had video games received the kind of mainstream attention that a Hollywood film would provide. I recognized after revisiting the film recently that it wasn't quite as amazing as I previously thought. But regardless, Nintendo's marketing push worked, as rather than facing public backlash for Super Mario 3's delay, they were instead met with even greater anticipation for the title. Which is why, when Super Mario 3 finally did release outside of Japan in 1990, it was met with significant demand, nearly instantaneously becoming a bestseller and further solidifying Shigeru Miyamoto and his team as some of the premier developers and designers working in the video game industry. Critical response was similarly strong, as numerous publications would declare the title to be one of the best games ever made, with near-perfect review scores coming from a number of different news outlets. In the years that would follow, Super Mario 3 would be lauded as one of the best games of all time, and would receive a number of re-releases and remasters, including on the Super Nintendo, Game Boy Advance, NES Classic, and a number of Nintendo's online game distribution platforms. It would go on to be one of the highest-selling games of its era, with over 17 million copies sold over its lifetime, and would also influence the future of the Mario series more than perhaps any other Mario title. Looking at the Mario series as a whole, Super Mario 3 is where the Mario Bros formula truly took shape and became a recipe for success, and nearly every Mario game that followed would inherit at least some aspects of the innovations that Super Mario 3 pioneered. The legacy of Mario as a character, Super Mario 3 as a game, and Shigeru Miyamoto and his team cannot be overstated, and I'd argue that there are very few entertainment properties that have had as lasting and significant cultural impact as the Mario series of games. With Super Mario 3, Miyamoto and Nintendo created an experience that represented the biggest and best Mario adventure to date, and would serve as the framework upon which every future Mario game would be created. As both a monumental achievement in 8-bit platforming game design, as well as a significant pop culture event, Super Mario 3 is one of those gaming experiences that has transcended its era, and as such, deserves to be both remembered and respected forever. going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play super mario bros 3 today versus when it was released over 35 years ago so super mario bros 3 is a side scrolling and sometimes vertically scrolling platforming title and in many ways it represents the quintessential platforming experience in the game you control mario or luigi if playing multiplayer And over a gigantic number of levels and multiple world themes, you'll encounter a variety of enemies, traverse a ton of obstacles, defeat a handful of bosses, and ultimately save Princess Peach from the clutches of Bowser. So, based on that description, you might say, okay, cool, you just described any old Mario game. But in reality, Mario 3 is a lot deeper than that, and in particular, it's dramatically deeper than any other Mario adventure that preceded its release. In order to show how deep of a platforming experience it is, I want to dive deep into the world design, the item system, and what I'll call the special features of the title because it is those three elements that really demonstrate how Super Mario 3 differed from its predecessors, as well as how it leapfrogged pretty much every platforming title that had been released up to this point. To start, let's talk about the game's world design. Mario 3 is designed around the concept of multiple worlds, each of which have their own overworld map. Each of those worlds has their own theming, which ultimately helps determine what enemy types, stage environments, and power-ups will be available to the player. The variety at display here is vast, and to demonstrate that, let's talk about each world a little bit. World 1 is known as Grassland, and it is by far the simplest world in the whole game, both from a graphical perspective as well as from an overall gameplay mechanics standpoint. Grassland is effectively the game's tutorial, and I'd argue that it's one of the most effective tutorial worlds in a video game ever. Over the course of the various stages in the grassland, you'll learn how to use certain new power-ups to help traverse levels, like utilizing the raccoon leaf to fly into the air, which by the way was an experience that was simply breathtaking to experience at the time of release. Nowadays, flying in a platformer is no great shakes, but back when Mario 3 hit the market, it was literally mind-blowing to be able to fly above a stage and oftentimes even find secrets off the beaten track. Anyway, World 1 sets up the general structure of each world that will follow, with a number of different stages that may, or may not, need to be beaten in order to progress. Because, the Overland map is designed to allow multiple paths through a given world, meaning you can technically skip certain stages if you so desire. World 1, like all other worlds that follow, is split up into a couple of different sections, with a castle marking what is effectively the checkpoint of the world. That checkpoint is the way that progress is saved, so to speak, if you end up losing all of your lives. To be clear, though, there is no save system in Super Mario 3, which means you need to complete the game in one sitting. You do have unlimited continues, and there are ways to warp around, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but stage progress in a given world will reset when you lose all of your lives. The trick here is if you complete the world's castle, which is similar in many cases to the fourth castle stage of each world in the original Super Mario Bros., you'll typically unlock a path that was previously blocked off, either via a gate opening or some other obstacle being removed that allows you to effectively skip the stages that preceded the castle. That castle, as well as the sub-boss of that castle, remains defeated even after a continue, which makes sense considering that the castle acts as a checkpoint for your progress in an individual world. Assuming you make your way past the world's castle and the stages that follow, you'll eventually reach the world's final stage, which is a flying, or in some cases floating, airship with a number of obstacles and bullet-related projectiles that need to be dodged as you make your way through the stage. Eventually, assuming you avoid enough of the bullet barrage, you'll reach a pipe that leads into the airship itself, which leads to a boss fight. Assuming you beat the boss, you will have defeated that world and can progress to the next world in the game. World 1 encompasses all of those framework elements and sets the stage for every single world that follows. World 1 is also a mostly easy, somewhat lighthearted jaunt through a series of stages, which feels designed to ease players into the experience of playing the rest of the game. From my perspective, World 1 is designed to be beaten by anyone, almost regardless of skill level. It's the introduction to the game, and like I mentioned earlier, it's one of the smoothest, best-designed tutorial worlds in a game that I've seen. It doesn't hold your hand, but at the same time, it gives you just enough experiential knowledge to know everything you need to know to beat the rest of the game. That doesn't mean the rest of the game is a walk in the park, but if you can beat World 1, you pretty much know how every mechanic you need to use is used in order to be successful. After you beat World 1, you enter the second world in the game, which is Desert Land. Just like the name suggests, this world is all about moving through a series of desert-like stages, including some inner structures that are, in some ways, similar to ruins and pyramids. This is where you'll encounter the angry sun for the first time, which can be irritating if you're not quite ready for his dive attack. Desert Land raises the difficulty a bit beyond grassland, though it is still entirely doable with a little bit of practice. World 3 is Waterland, and here is where you'll likely face one of the earliest difficulty spikes in the game. This world is all about navigating stages with water, and in some instances, you may even end up swimming through a given area. From my perspective, this is the world where you're going to first think, okay, maybe Mario 3 isn't quite as easy as I expected. World 4 is Giant Land, and it is probably the best world in the entire game, if only because of how unique it is in comparison to other worlds. In Giant Land, you encounter enemies that are dramatically larger than Mario, and let me tell you, Seeing the size of these sprites for the first time back when the game came out was awe-inspiring and was something that was truly shocking to see in an NES game. The real interesting aspect of this world is that certain stages allow you to swap back and forth between giant enemies and more normal-sized enemies, which I thought was a pretty cool mechanic. World 5 is Skyland, which has a unique setup in that the world itself is effectively split up into two sections. The first section is based on the land, and is similar to other kinds of stages you've encountered in other worlds. Eventually, though, you'll make your way to a tower stage that stretches up into the clouds. Assuming you can beat that tower, which involves ascending a number of horizontal rooms stacked on top of each other, you'll end up in the cloud section of the world, which contains levels that are effectively floating in the sky. World six is Iceland, which begins to use some icy physics as you make your way through the stages. I'm going to come right out and say it. I'm not the biggest fan of ice-based physics, and I mean that in the most general sense. I just don't like ice physics. It doesn't matter if they're well implemented or frustrating, slippy-slidey slopes. To me, they just completely sap the momentum of a game. I will say, the icy stages in Mario 3 are generally well designed, but I still maintain that ice physics are not my cup of tea. World 7 is Pipeland and has some of the most difficult stages in the entire game. The core conceit of this world is that each set of stages is connected by any number of pipes, and navigating those pipe links can be a bit confusing. The navigation of the world, though, isn't that big of a deal. The bigger issue is the obscene difficulty spike in some of the levels, which for me introduced some frustration that I hadn't truly experienced up to this point. Now, I should clarify that as part of my playthrough, I wanted to prove that I could beat every stage in the game, which means that I never skipped a stage in favor of a less difficult one. For someone simply playing the game for fun, you can avoid the most difficult stages and in the process minimize the associated frustration. For completionists though, this one can be a bit painful. World 8 is Darkland and is effectively Bowser's World. This world is unique in that there are a number of airship and tank levels, each of which retain their completion status after you beat them, regardless of if you need to use a continue or not. There are a couple of standard stages as well, but those are actually deceptively simple, with a special trick in each to basically avoid the hardest parts of each stage. Even if playing them normally, these stages are nicely tuned. They're challenging without feeling frustrating. The other stages in Darkland, meaning the airship and tank stages, are pretty darn challenging with the only redeeming element being that you only have to beat them once given the context of these stages being part of the final world of the game their increased difficulty coupled with the reward of not having to replay them if you end up losing all of your lives makes perfect sense the final stage of world 8 and by extension the game is actually one of my favorites in the entire experience as it's designed as a multiple path kind of stage with various obstacles and difficulties on each path This felt like an awesome culmination of the rest of the game, and the final boss fight used a unique mechanic that I particularly enjoyed. No spoilers, but suffice it to say, this goes beyond the traditional jump on something's head until it dies kind of approach, and I appreciated its uniqueness. As is hopefully obvious, Super Mario 3 is a very diverse platforming experience. And if all that diversity was restricted solely to the level design, that would still be good enough to stand as one of the better constructed platforming titles of its era. What puts it over the top, though, is the item system, which can drastically change how you play each stage. So let's go through each of those items and how they can literally make or break your experience in completing a given level. First, though, I should note every single level can be beaten without using any items, though, as you might expect, the fewer special items you use, the more difficult most levels will become. That being said, it wouldn't be a Mario adventure without some series staples. So, of course, you have Super Mushrooms, which make Mario increase in size and allows him to get hit once without dying. You also have Fire Flowers, which let you shoot flame balls at enemies, as well as Super Stars, which grant you invincibility for a period of time, and also, by the way, lets you do a cool flipping jump move that, while totally unnecessary, looks awesome and is simply fun to use. Beyond those core items, you have a bunch of special items that never existed before Mario 3 with perhaps the most iconic two items being the Raccoon Leaf and the tanuki Suit. Both the Raccoon Leaf and the tanuki Suit allow Mario to fly around a level, assuming you can build up enough speed to take off. That speed, by the way, is governed by a power meter, and if you can hit an uninterrupted run for a certain period of time, you'll fill up that power meter and be able to take off. In order to fly into the sky, as well as slow your descent after your power meter depletes, you have to flick your tail. The Tanuki Suit also has an additional feature, which is the ability to turn invincible for a short period of time if you stand still and press down and B at the same time. Now, I can't stress enough how much the ability to fly absolutely changes the game, and makes Mario 3's levels an incredibly rewarding experience to explore. As many likely know, Mario games are typically full of secrets, which you might get by descending a pipe or jumping over the ceiling of a given stage. In Mario 3, The ability to fly opens up a whole new dimension to exploration, and there are numerous levels where flying into the sky makes the screen shift upward, which is how you know there's something cool to discover up there. Sometimes the screen doesn't shift, but there's still something secret up in the sky, which is particularly interesting and surprising when you encounter one of those situations. Flight can also completely trivialize many levels, though your flight time is not unlimited, so you still have to deal with some traditional platforming at some point while using the Raccoon Leaf and Tanooki suit. The P-Wing, however, is a special flight power that provides you with unlimited flight time, at least for the individual level in which it's activated. Using the P-Wing can turn a super difficult level into an easy breezy experience, because you can often simply fly above all enemies en route to the end of the level. Some stages do have safeguards that prevent the P-Wing from being as effective, such as certain stages where enemies and projectiles fly higher in the air, water-based levels, and stages that are designed as corridor-like environments with a ceiling. In those instances, the P-Wing can still potentially help, it's just not as game-breakingly easy mode as it is in more open stages. Other than the flight-based items, you also have access to a frog suit, which makes swimming in water levels feel amazing, with controls that feel super tight and responsive. The frog suit, by the way, can also be used on land, giving you a hop ability whenever you move around a stage. I will say though, I wasn't a huge fan of the frog suit on land. It felt a bit trickier to control, so I often avoided using a frog suit, except on levels where I knew it was predominantly water. And finally, you receive one other in-level power-up, which is a hammer bro suit. This power-up, as you'd expect, turns you into a hammer bro, complete with the ability to attack other enemies with hammer projectiles, which can be incredibly powerful, but is also a bit tricky to maintain through the platforming sections of various levels. Even after talking about those in-level power-ups, we're not done talking about special items, as on the overworld map, you also have access to a number of unique items to use as you see fit. All of these items impact the way you navigate a world, and some can be incredibly impactful depending on the situation you find yourself in. One of those items, Lakitu's Cloud, allows you to skip a level entirely by simply floating over it. That might sound great, but I want to give you a word of warning. If you use a cloud to skip a level, but you don't reach one of the checkpoint castles in a given world, or you don't beat the world's airship entirely, then you may find yourself restarting a given world without a cloud, but with the requirement to beat that level that you previously skipped. This can be a bit of a punch to the gut, depending on how difficult that level was that you skipped, so I do urge caution in when and how you use the cloud. Another item is the music box, which can make Hammer Bros on the overworld map go to sleep. I didn't mention it before, but as you navigate around a given world map, there are any number of overworld events, so to speak, that are external to the stages in the world, but still add an activity that needs to be completed. One of those events is a Hammer Bros fight, which usually consists of fighting two Hammer Bros attacking from a fortified position. Assuming you defeat the Hammer Bros, you can find a new item in a chest that appears after the fight. If you don't feel like that though, the music box will put the hammer bros to sleep, allowing you to move right past them without needing to defeat them. Definitely useful, but one of those items that I didn't really use much in my playthrough. I'd rather go for the chance of acquiring a new item as opposed to skipping the fight. Another item that you might find is a hammer, which allows you to break rock obstacles that might be preventing you from accessing certain sections of a world's map. I mentioned earlier that most world maps have some sort of obstacles on various paths, some of which, like gates, are removed upon completing a checkpoint castle in the world. There are other obstacles in the world, like rocks, that can only be destroyed by using a hammer. These blocked-off paths often lead to some sort of secret or item stash, which can certainly be useful, but ultimately is not required to beat the game. Another item, and one that can really trim the length of the game, is the warp whistle. Warp Whistles can be found in various off-the-beaten-path areas throughout the game, and they do exactly what their name suggests. If you use the whistle, you'll warp to a different world. Assuming you don't play the game in a single sitting, Warp Whistles can let you get back up to where you were very quickly, even without the ability to save progress locally on the game cartridge. This felt like Nintendo's way of compensating for the fact that the game doesn't have a password or battery-backed save mechanic, and it goes a long way to making repeat visits into the game world less cumbersome than it might otherwise be. And finally, we have the Anchor, which is exceedingly rare. In fact, it's so rare that I didn't find a single Anchor in my entire playthrough, and I actually only know it exists because various reference materials tell me it exists. The Anchor is an interesting item and is used as a countermeasure against one of the more irritating aspects of the game's design. When you attempt one of a world's airship stages but lose, that airship will take to the sky and move off to a different section of a given world. Sometimes that movement is minimal and you can reattempt the airship without issue. Other times though, it might move to a section of the map that has stages you may need to complete in order to access the ship again. In the early worlds, that's not a huge deal but on some of the more difficult later worlds, this can be a major source of frustration. The anchor helps to mitigate that airship movement, as the anchor will freeze an airship in place, making it unable to move around a world, even if you fail in your attempt at completing the stage. So, as you can see, Mario 3 has an absolutely insane number of items that you might find throughout your playthrough, and in a first for the series, you actually have an inventory where you can collect these items and power-ups for use wherever you want. And you can find those items in a variety of ways. Some you may find as you play an individual stage, while others you might find after beating the boss of an airship, or defeating a hammer bros pair, or finding a secret room in a level, or accessing one of the many toad houses that dot the landscape of each world. Or, well, you get the idea. Oh, by the way, the way the toad houses work is that you enter these mushroom houses and are given a choice between one of three treasure chests, which is effectively a game of chance. You get to pick one of those treasure chests, which allows you to retrieve and store whatever random item might have been stored in that chest. This is another feature that adds an interesting strategy to playing the game. Do you go off the critical path to reach a toad house and potentially get a powerful item? Or do you push into a different level, albeit without an item that could potentially make your playthrough easier? The game has options, and I feel like it adds a bit of strategy to the traditional platforming formula. There are a few other special features included in the game as well, including the ability to collect one of three cards at the end of each stage, which, depending on what combination you find, can grant you anywhere from one to five extra lives. Those cards work on a simple match three kind of concept, though even if you don't match all three objects, you'll still be awarded a single extra life for your efforts. There's also a couple of other matching games that can also provide you with extra lives, one of which is a card-based memory game that can occasionally turn up on a world's map, while the other requires you to match three parts of a face in order to require additional lives. All of these special features are fun diversions that add even greater diversity to the act of playing the game, and those features, combined with the world design and the huge variety of power-ups and items available, are why Super Mario Bros. 3 was so revered and admired when it was first released. No other platforming title of the time had such an in-depth level of design, and Super Mario 3 ended up creating a new standard by which all future platforming titles would be compared. The same way as the original Super Mario Bros. created the framework that nearly all future platform titles would utilize, Super Mario 3 evolved that framework, taking everything Nintendo had learned over the years and creating something that is, in the eyes of many gamers, truly special. We're going to talk more about the specific aspects of what make the game special in just a second. But first, as we always do, I need to take a look at the back of the box because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love seeing how different companies marketed their titles, especially in the pre internet era, because a lot of times our buying decisions were based on what the box looked like and what was said on the back of the box. Now for super Mario three, even though we didn't have the internet, We certainly knew that Mario 3 was coming because there was such an intense demand, as well as some of the marketing like we were talking about with the movie The Wizard, that I can't imagine anybody walking into the store and not realizing what Super Mario 3 was all about. Regardless, I still like looking at the back of the box because it's what I do. So, for Mario 3, for the NES, the back of the box says... Super Mario Bros. 3 New different worlds, new exciting levels, new challenges galore. Fight monsters and mini bosses, avoid ghosts in the burning sun, make your way through water and quicksand, dodge cannonballs and bullets, and rescue the King's Wand. In Super Mario Bros. 3, there are more warps, more chances at extra lives, and new special suits. The raccoon suit lets you fly and knock out blocks, the frog suit helps you outswim deadly fish. There are suits for every occasion. Store up flowers and mushrooms to use later on. Play game show type bonus rounds. Go back to that last screen and get a mushroom. Pause to take a break, then continue where you left off. Super Mario Bros. 3 is fun to play alone or team up with a buddy to prolong the adventure. And then there are several screenshots on the back of the box showing a couple of game worlds as well as the overworld map for one of the levels. And I've got to say, this box absolutely sells me. And the front of the box, by the way, looks really cool, too, with Mario and his raccoon tail power-up suit flying through the air. The whole thing sold me on it, and I was a child that was incredibly anxious about Super Mario 3. I wanted it so badly. I was so disappointed when it was delayed, but then when we ultimately got it, I was over the moon. I love this box. I loved the game when I got it, and this is one of those games that I absolutely did get as soon as it was released in North America. I was pretty much making my family get it as soon as it was possibly available. I do want to mention one thing that I found a little funny as I was looking at the back of the box where it says, pause to take a break and then continue where you left off. So it's kind of interesting that they allude to the fact that there is no real save mechanism in the game, but they don't call it out as such. They basically just say, hey, take a break, come back, finish it off kind of thing. And I thought that was kind of funny to actually call out as a bullet point, so to speak, on the box. Anyway, I like the Super Mario Bros. 3 box. It's just awesome. So let's move on and start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. Super Mario Bros. 3 is one of, if not the, best-looking NES game of all time and stands as the pinnacle of 8-bit graphic design. Every graphical element in the game, from enemy and character design to environmental features to animations, literally everything is top-notch and blows other 8-bit titles out of the water with its sheer variety and quality. There's not much more I can say here. The game looked great from every perspective. Special kudos, though, need to go out to the giant world, which contained huge sprites that totally exceeded expectations for what I was ready for coming from my NES. It was just a truly stellar visual presentation. Moving on to the sound and music, the soundtrack for Super Mario 3 is varied, catchy, fun, and expertly composed. It is simply perfect, and represents a masterclass in game sound design by composer Koji Kondo. There seriously is not a bad track in the game. It's that good. Sound effects similarly sound great, with every jump, enemy collision, block break, and everything else being a perfect fit for the action taking place on the screen. The sound effects are so distinct that I'd imagine there are people who could probably play the game blindfolded and be successful. Not everyone, mind you, but I bet there's someone out there who ended up beating Super Mario 3 without once looking at the screen. Regardless, the simple fact is every aspect of the sound is stellar, and I have literally no complaints. Moving on to the narrative and story, you play, as you might have guessed, as Mario, mustachioed plumber and previous savior of the Mushroom Kingdom. One day... Bowser, the evil king of the Koopas, sends his children, seven Koopalings, to invade the seven kingdoms of the Mushroom World to steal special wands from each kingdom and use them to change the rulers of those kingdoms into various animals. Princess Peach asks Mario and Luigi, technically, to go into those kingdoms to retrieve the wands and return each ruler to their normal form. Eventually, Bowser decides to take matters into his own hands, kidnapping Princess Peach and imprisoning her in his own kingdom, the Dark Land. It's up to you to defeat Bowser, rescue the princess, and restore order to the mushroom world, one level at a time. This story is fairly typical for a Mario platformer, and honestly, it works just fine. As I've said before, platformers don't need a deep story, and you're definitely not given a deep story here. But what is here works, and it never gets in the way of the main focus of the game, which is fun platforming action. Moving on to the playability and controls. Controlling Mario is exactly what you might expect, as you use your directional pad to move around the game's world, use the B button to sprint and do various special attacks depending on the power-up you have equipped, and use the A button to jump in the air, and from platform to platform, and to swim if you're in a water stage. The interesting thing here is that despite the simplicity of the controls, the variety of the power-ups makes the control scheme actually feel more in-depth than what it is, and I mean that in the most positive way possible. You know how some games present convoluted controls or inconsistent button usage that can sometimes cause confusion well mario 3 never falls into this trap and despite the fact that the controls change a bit depending on your power up it never feels unmanageable and instead makes the entire experience feel more engaging than it otherwise would i also appreciated the tightness of the controls and how good it feels to run jump swim and fly through levels I've mentioned in prior episodes when certain games don't have the right feel of inertia and momentum in their character movement, which can make a game much more difficult to play. Super Mario 3 has no issues here, and it pretty much presents the most refined version of a nearly perfect control scheme and gameplay feel, which makes the entire experience feel joyous to play. That being said, I do have one major critique, and that is the fact that some stages feel unnecessarily difficult with certain stage designs being super challenging, especially in comparison to other levels that might be part of that same world. Now I want to clarify, difficulty in a game is totally fine. Difficulty spikes in games are what I take exception to, as those spikes can often derail the fun that you've been having, which runs the risk of making your lasting impression be more negative than it otherwise would have been. Just to be clear, I don't think Mario 3 has a major miss here, but it is a surprisingly difficult game, especially in the later stages. I can honestly say that I don't remember the game being quite as difficult as it is. For awareness, I played through Super Mario 3 multiple times when I was a kid, and I remember the whole game being challenging, but totally doable. Playing through it for this podcast episode, I found it to be much more difficult than my prior memories led me to believe. Could the difficulty have been smoothed out a bit? Yeah, I think it could have been. But we also have to remember that part of the difficulty mitigation in the game involves the fact that you can use items to simplify certain levels, and some levels can even be avoided entirely by navigating a different path in the game's world. Like I mentioned earlier, I made the experience arbitrarily more difficult for myself by requiring the completion of every level in the game before I could declare myself successful. From that perspective, the game can be really challenging. From a broader perspective, and taking into account the mitigations the game makes available to help progress through each level, the game is actually pretty well balanced, though I still maintain that most people will encounter at least a small bit of frustration as they work their way through the title. Other than that one piece, I literally have no complaints. The game controls perfectly, and it remains as playable today as it ever has been. So overall, how did it feel to play Mario 3? Well, if I look at Super Mario 3 as a total package, I think it's safe to say that it feels like a wondrous achievement by a team of incredibly talented developers, designers, artists, and musicians. While I don't think the game was 100% perfect, it is about as close to perfect as a game can be, and the fact that many people consider it to be one of, if not the best game of all time, isn't hyperbole. It truly is that phenomenal, and it really hasn't aged a day so what is our verdict on super mario 3 when historians of the future look back on the games of the 20th century there are a few titles that will likely be looked at as true game changers super mario bros 3 is one of them quite simply super mario 3 is a monumental achievement in 8-bit game design and can likely stand toe-to-toe against any individual game in history whether classic or modern There is no doubt in my mind that Super Mario 3 is one of the best games ever created, and it is therefore an undeniable entry into our pantheon of classic gaming. Super Mario 3 broke the mold when it was created, and it remains a landmark release in video game history. There's really not much more to say. If you've played Super Mario 3, you know how good it is. If you haven't played it before, turn off this podcast and go play the game. I have no doubt it will be worth your time. was our episode on super mario bros 3 i hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed creating it if you'd like to reach out let me know how i'm doing provide feedback comments suggestions or just talk about classic games and technology in general i would love to hear from you and there are a few ways you can reach out I have an X account with the handle at Classic Gaming T. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the podcast community. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. I highly encourage you to check it out. I also encourage you to check out our Patreon. It is Patreon.com slash Today. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today goodness, Patreon.com slash Today is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Beneath the Steel Sky, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast engines, and if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you would leave a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to get the feedback necessary to make sure this can continue to be the best podcast I can make. We get new listeners every single day, which is awesome. The only way to continue to grow and continue to make sure we're delivering the content everyone wants to listen to is to get that feedback so that I can continue to try to make this the best possible podcast I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Beneath a Steel Sky. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.